And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 13, continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And as we continue through the study of this book, I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that you would guide us into truth, that you would deliver us from error, deliver us from distraction. Fill me with your spirit, I pray. Loosen my tongue that I might articulate these things clearly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, you've heard the popular phrase, politics makes strange bedfellows. That saying is adapted from uh, Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. You know, all of our great phrases either come from Shakespeare or the King James Bible. Every one of them uh, has, you can find their source in either one of those. Well, this one comes from The Tempest by Shakespeare, where there's a, there's a man who's been shipwrecked and he's seeking shelter and he finds comfort beside a sleeping monster who he assumes is some kind of sea creature. And as he huddles close to this monster, he says, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. So in our popular uh, saying, we say politics makes strange bedfellows, but in the play, it's misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. Truly, misery does lead people to compromise. Misery leads people to accept as normal things that they wouldn't normally uh, go along with, things that they wouldn't normally uh, accept as normal. And nowhere do you find more strange bedfellows than among the philosophies and the agendas of the revolutionaries currently prevailing over our society. There's no end to the contradictions among the views and the positions that are held among our modern progressives and reactionaries as they force a fragile unity among people from every, every uh, 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 strain of thought are all, all somehow holding and trying to hold something uh, together while they all disagree with each other on very fundamental foundational things. How is it? I mean, just a few of these contradictions. How is it that people who don't believe in God or have any authority for the, uh, don't, don't have any respect for the authority of the church, how is it they also have a complete faith in a massive, unaccountable, all-knowing, all-powerful government bureaucracy? Uh, why, why do people who talk about uh, uh, empowerment and independence always support causes that end in slavery and dependence? How can you profess a love for the liberation that education brings and then use education only to indoctrinate? You drown out any question or any perspective 
that distracts from your narrative. They advocate for all forms of a diversity except for intellectual diversity. They accept no diversity of opinion or thought, which makes the tolerant the most intolerant. The, the people of love and decency and acceptance are the most objectively hateful people you will ever come across. What do all of these disparate, inconsistent, often antithetical positions and those who hold them, what do they all have in common? Well, Shakespeare said it. Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. Tribes which normally stand apart from each other, who are even hostile to each other, end up consolidating when they're confronted with a larger common threat. Some greater misery drives them together. So in The Tempest, man and beast, can, uh, they, they huddle together against the storm, which is bigger than both of them. In our context, the common enemy uh, of the deconstructors of our society, the common enemy is the truth. The common enemy is accountable to the creator of heaven and earth. The common enemy is biblical justice and biblical order. They can't have any of that, so they coalesce around anything that opposes biblical order. Thus, the manifold contradictions. All they have in common is opposition to King Jesus. The same dynamic was present in the events surrounding the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. There were three prevailing factions in the time of Jesus, which all coordinated together, which all conspired together for the crucifixion of Jesus, but which were otherwise completely opposed to each other. You had the Jews, the people of Judea. You had the Herods, who were Idumeans. They were Edomites. Uh, they were descendants of, of Esau. They were the kings over, over Judea. And then you had the Romans, who were the occupying force in the land of Judea, the Roman Empire. The people of Judea they despised the Romans and they chafed under the Herods. The Herods were not Jewish kings. As I said, they were descendants of Esau. They were puppet kings put over Judea and under the rule of Rome. The Edomite Herods were opportunists. They had no deep affection for either the Jews or the, or the Romans. And Rome only tolerated the radical monotheistic Jews. The Jews despise the Roman occupiers. There's constant trouble. None of them really get along. None of them really have anything in common. Three factions with no great warmth for each other. And yet, when it comes to defeating their common enemy, Jesus, they easily work together. They come together in this very fluid harmony, this fluid unity. They form this unholy alliance to defeat the common threat, who is Jesus. Well, Revelation 13 tells us about this unholy alliance. It tells us about this alliance in symbolic form. Apostate Israel snuggles up to the sea beast and, and snuggles up to the strange bedfellow in Revelation 13. Everything you need to know about the book of Revelation, you can find in the first verse of the first chapter, which says that this is, is a message communicated in the language of symbol. This, this message is signified. It is, it is a book written in the language of symbol, and it also says these are things which must shortly take place. So the book of Revelation is, is a book that uses the language of symbol, pictures, images, types to tell the story of events that happen in the first century, happen, uh, things that happen in heaven and earth, uh, which happen close to when they were they were written, things that are near to the time when John writes them. 
And in this section that we're studying now and have been studying for a few weeks, John, the Apostle John, is viewing signs in the heavens. He's viewed a, uh, uh, he's seen a vision of a woman about to give birth to a son and there's a dragon coiled to devour the son, but the son is born and he is, he's lifted up to a throne in heaven from which he fights the dragon and casts the dragon down to the land. And last week we built on that with the first part of chapter 13, where the dragon who has been cast down to the land summons a great beast from the sea. And remembering all the connections with the book of Daniel and Daniel's visions, how Daniel teaches us about beastly empires, we see that the sea beast is an empire rising from the west, coming against the land of Israel, which is a picture of the Roman Empire. The dragon calls this beastly empire, empowers him, and impresses his image on him so that the beast looks like the dragon and acts like the dragon. So we have this false incarnation set up. We have this, this false father and son relationship. The dragon is playing the part of the father, and the beast from the sea is playing the part of his son. This is a parody of the incarnation. This is a counterfeit incarnation. And now, to round it out with this whole distorted trinity, we have another beast who is like the spirit, who gives, he, he gives life with his breath, and he proceeds from the false father and the false son. So John sees another beast coming up out of the land. In verse 11 of chapter 13, I saw another beast coming up out of the land and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Remember in prophetic literature, whenever, you're, whenever you come across the sea, we're talking about the Gentile nations. Whenever we talk about the land, that has to do with the land of promise, Israel. So the sea beast is a Gentile nation and he comes up as an image of the dragon, but this beast comes from the land and he's an image of the first beast. The land beast now has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. So who is this land beast arising up from Israel? We get a little bit more information if we read ahead. If we look at chapter 16 and chapter 19 of Revelation, this beast is called a false prophet. Well, Jesus told us, he said, in Israel's last days, many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And Jesus said they would come dressed as what? They would come in sheep's clothing, right? So this looks like a sheep. It looks like a clean sacrificial animal. But when it opens its mouth, it sounds like a dragon. This beast from the land is a symbolic representation of apostate Israel who cooperated with Rome, that generation who conspired with Rome to put Jesus to death, that generation who helped advance the ideology of the empire and who ally with Rome against the church. This beast, apostate unbelieving Israel who rejected Jesus is the enemy of the church and is unquestionably a servant of the dragon. Now, this, this may be hard to swallow. Many in evangelical Christian uh, circles try to maintain warm thoughts about modern Israel and sentimental thoughts about Judaism, believing that they're our cousins. Well, they just worship the same God that we do. They only have two-thirds of the Bible that we do, but otherwise they're just, they're just, they're okay. They're all right. I mean, they worship God, right? They're fine. But modern Judaism is not the, the, the religion of the Old Testament. Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said, if you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote about me. 
If you don't trust Jesus, then you don't trust Moses. You don't believe Moses. Modern Judaism and Judaism for the last 2,000 years has denied Christ, not because they just can't get on board with him as Messiah. That's not, that's not what it is. They deny Christ because they don't believe Moses. They don't believe the scriptures that they do have. Their teaching comes from the oral traditions of men. And still to this day, they look like sacrificial sheep, but when they open their mouths, they speak the words of the dragon. The faith of Judaism cannot save. It has no Christ. It has no blood. It has no sacrifice. It has no redemption. It has no future. It has no life. And so we can't think of Judaism as just, you know, kind of these, these cousins and it'll, it'll all work out somehow um, because that's not the image we get in the scriptures. In fact, the Bible gives us many examples of apostate Israel's uh, uh, speaking against the church with the voice of the dragon. They speak like a dragon. After the resurrection of Jesus, the high priests pay off the soldiers to lie and say the body of Jesus was stolen. They deliberately spread something that they know to be false in order to undermine and undercut the message of the resurrection and the truth of the power of the resurrected Christ. And Acts, the book of Acts, gives us multiple examples of how apostate Israel fought against the church with the lies and the deceit and the blasphemy of the dragon. In Acts 6, it's, it's Israel who stir up false witnesses against Stephen and stone him. In Acts 13, Paul is opposed by a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, and Paul tells him he is full of deceit, he is en an enemy of righteousness, he is a son of the devil. In Acts 13, the synagogue of Iconium poisons the minds of the Gentiles against the church. In Acts 17, the synagogue of Thessalonica goes down to the, to, to the marketplace and they get every, every bully and every thug and every lazy and, and worthless man that they can find and they put together a mob and then they go over and they start dragging Christians out of their houses and start accusing them before the rulers of the city. Also in Acts 19, the synagogue in Ephesus spreads lies about the church to the Gentiles. In Acts 21, Jews wrongfully accuse Paul of taking Gentiles into the temple, and they accuse him of teaching against God's law, neither of which were true. They incite a, Paul, a, a mob against Paul who, who pull Paul out of the temple and then start beating him until the Romans deliver him. And that's just a handful of examples. In Revelation, in the, in the letter to Smyrna, Jesus talks about the persecution against that church from those who say they are Jews but are not. You see, real Israel, true Israel, is the Israel that is heir to the promises that are all communicated through Jesus. And so Jesus says there's this synagogue, that these Jews who say they're Jews and they're not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. These are all the operations of the beast who looks like a lamb and sounds like a dragon. The land beast has two horns in uh, John's vision, two symbols of power lifted up to the sky. In both Daniel and Revelation, horns are rulers. Israel had two significant rulers. In fact, the two rulers represented in the temple, in the two pillars of the temple that had names, Yachin and Boaz, those, those pillars of Israel, those pillars of the temple are the priest and the king. So the two horns, the two rulers of this apostate Israel must be who's the high priest and who's the king. The king is Herod 
and and you have the uh, you have you have the high priest, uh, the Sadducees in, um, in 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 this time in first century uh, Judea. So these two powers set on the destruction of Jesus and his church are the high priest and the Herod. Now, as I said, in the time of Jesus, the high priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day. They denied the immortality of the soul. They denied the resurrection of the, of the body. Uh, they, they, they weren't theologically astute. They didn't care about any of that. They were aristocrats. They were wealthy merchants. They loved the status and the prestige of their office more than fulfilling the calling of their office, the duty of their office. Remember, Caiaphas, the high priest, conspired to put Jesus to death because he says, if we don't stop this right now, if we don't put this one man to death, Rome is going to come down here and remove us out of this place. He feared Rome more than he feared God. And so uh, one of the horns uplifted uh, in this image is the, is the high priest. The other are the Herods. And I've told you uh, in earlier, um, just a few minutes ago, and reminded you the Herods were Edomites. They're descendants of Saul. And all the Herods are these murderous thugs. We don't ever get a Herod that we think, oh man, I'd like to hang out with that guy. He's a pretty good guy. All the Herods are terrible. Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus as a small boy. Harold Antipas killed John the Baptist and put Jesus on trial, participated in the trial of Jesus. Herod Agrippa I killed James. Herod Agrippa II tried the Apostle Paul. And so both the high priest and the Herods seek the destruction of the church. They're the twin horns of the land beast of apostate Israel. Now, one of the uh, questions people ask when they get into this section of Revelation, read this chapter, especially when they get into the sign of the beast, they say, okay, okay, hold on. Who's the Antichrist? Who, who is that figure? Well, the word Antichrist doesn't show up in Revelation. John doesn't use that word in Revelation, but John does use that word over in his epistles. He talks about Antichrist over in 1 John and 2 John, and he uses it in two senses. He talks about the capital A Antichrist, but then he talks about many Antichrists, many deceivers, uh, uh, many, many counterfeit Christ. That's what Antichrist is, the opposite of Christ, is Antichrist. Uh, whenever we're examining a man for ordination and we ask him, what are your exceptions to the Westminster Confession? If he's going off the original version of the Westminster Confession, which says the Pope is the Antichrist, often a, a man for uh, being ordained will, will take an exception and say, well, I don't believe that the Pope is the Antichrist, but I certainly believe he is a Antichrist. And that's what, that's what John is, is talking about there in, in 1 John as well. He uses that both senses. There are those who are Antichrists and there is the, there is, there is the Antichrist who comes in the last hour of Israel, who John says is a liar and a deceiver and a denier of Christ. So he's the opposite. That's why anti is. He's the opposite of Christ. He's the false Christ. Well, I think you have a picture of him here with the lamb who lies like a dragon. He, he's the counterfeit lamb. He's the counterfeit Christ. But, but the apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians uh, gives us some more information. Um, Hear what Paul says in uh, 2 Thessalonians. He writes about the man of lawlessness, and this is what he says. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, he's talking about the day of the Lord, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Well, 
Who opposes God and who exalts himself above God by exalting himself above Jesus, by the way? Who, who, who does this and sits in the temple of God? Who does all of this from the temple? Well, it's the high priest. It's the high priest of Israel. And by the way, whoever this is, however we sort this out and however we answer this question about who Paul is talking about, it's got to be someone who is alive while the temple is still standing because this is somebody who does all this from the temple. And there hasn't been a temple since... AD 70. So it had to be somebody in the first century that, that Paul is talking about. We also read this about Herod Agrippa. So this is, this is more information. Herod Agrippa in Acts 12, we, we get this little information. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. So Herod also exalts himself as God. So which of these men is Paul referring to as the man of sin? Which one does John call the Antichrist? Well, we're narrowing the field. I think we're getting pretty warm. We might even conclude that what John and Paul are both talking about is this whole unholy alliance, the strange bedfellows of Herod and the high priest, the, the twin horns of the land beast. And these two horns and this beast attempt to destroy the church with all the authority of the first beast. Verse 12. And he exercises, this is the land beast, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. They, apostate Israel, Herod, the high priest, and those working under them, this whole system, they lead the people to worship the first beast who is Rome. Apostate Israel is not old Judaism just rambling along without Jesus. They are the Jews who choose to worship Caesar rather than Jesus. And I've referred to this many times, but this is such a pivotal moment in the history of of Israel is when they have the opportunity to deliver Jesus from crucifixion, they do not. And they say boldly, publicly, they announce, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. They declare their allegiance and their allegiance is to Caesar, not to their Messiah. They abandon their king that God sent them. They abandon their God because their loyalty and their allegiance is to Rome and not the kingdom of heaven. The book of Revelation is an unveiling. It's a revealing. We see that event in the gospels. And say, wow, that's really troubling. But then we pull back the curtain in the book of Revelation. We say, oh yeah, that was worship of the Roman empire. That's worship of Caesar. That's what, that's what Revelation calls that. And now with these things in place, and now that we've, we've, we've got these things set, the rest of the symbols uh, here kind of, kind of click into place. Look at verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. This is a false uh, Pentecost. It's a false Elijah as the two witnesses earlier call down fire from heaven. So now he, uh, this, this beast and his minions call down fire from heaven. The book of Acts records several instances of miracle working false Jewish prophets uh, who cast out demons, who do wonders and signs, and they come into conflict with the church and they work with the Roman officials just as Jesus said that they would do. 
Jesus talks about those who come to him in, in, in the last day and say, haven't we cast out demons and worked many wonders in your name? And what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But this is exactly what Jesus said that they would do and what John confirms in his visions. That they come working some kind of miracle. They do some kind of wonder, but they're all false. They're all counterfeits. They're all, they're all fake. Verse 14, and he deceives those who dwell on the land by the signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the land to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The land beast makes an image of the sea beast and breathes his life into it. What is this talking about? Whenever Israel goes really bad, whenever they go really off the rails, they go headlong into rebellion, it's always attended by false idolatrous worship. You remember Aaron's golden calf? Remember when Jeroboam sets up the two golden bulls at Dan and Bethel? You remember this? Well, what corrupt object of worship do both the Herods and the high priests participate in together? Do you remember any time in the Gospels or any time in the book of Acts where they make a golden bull? Uh, do, they ever, do they ever make a statue? Do they ever make a golden calf? Do they ever make an obelisk? Do they ever make a new Tower of Babel? Do they ever do that? What, what place or, or what structure do both the Herods and the high priests have in common that they really care about? Well, the temple that stands in the first century was known as Herod's Temple. Solomon's Temple was destroyed by Babylon. And in the days of Ezra, work on the second temple began, but it was a really modest structure compared to Solomon's. You'll remember in the book of Ezra, um, all the old men who remember the first temple, when they lay the foundation of, of the temple in Ezra, they start weeping and crying. This is not as good as the other temple. Well, no, it's not. It's not, uh, but it's, it'll do. Um, and so they build a second temple that, that doesn't really match the glory of Solomon's. And when Herod the Great comes along, he is embarrassed by the shabby little building and so he completely overhauls the entire temple complex. He, he puts up pinnacles and edifices. He has an outer courtyard for buying and selling and money trading. And then right next to the temple, Herod builds the Antonia Fortress with the idea that, that it would be there to protect the temple. And that fortress housed the Roman garrison that was there to occupy Jerusalem. The army that was stationed in Jerusalem to occupy the city went to bed next door to the temple as part of this great complex that Herod built. Uh, the fortress also held some of the riches of, um, of the temple, like the, the high priest's garments, his vestments, uh, his, gold, um, his gold diadem and things. They were, they were stored. They were kept in this fortress as well. So there's this union. There are these strange bedfellows of the Herods and the high priest just, just working together with Romans, uh, Roman power and authority sprinkled all over the top of it. This temple that Herod built is the temple that people refer to in, in John 2. Remember when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And of course, he was talking about his body. But then everybody hears him and says, what is he talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. Uh, well, it's Herod's temple that they're referring to when they, when they say that. So Herod builds this temple as a monument to himself 
and a monument to Roman occupation of Jerusalem. And the high priest comes along and he breathes the life of the dragon into it. He dedicates it with superficial temple worship that has no repentance, no obedience, no real concern for God's law. The temple is just the front for their whole organized crime operation to steal and oppress and devour widows' houses. Their worship at this time is just as hateful and noxious to God as, as it was in the time of Isaiah. All their lambs and goats and all their sacrifices uh, stink to God. And remember in, in Isaiah, when Yahweh says, my soul hates this. All these things are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear because your hands are full of blood. And when Jesus comes, he inspects the temple. He finds it woefully wanting. Jesus calls that temple, Herod's temple, a den of thieves. And Jesus pronounces its destruction. And it was indeed destroyed. See, the temple was intended to be a pattern of heaven. But under Herod and under these high priests, it's become an image of the power of Rome. It's a temple to the same God of power that Rome worships. And all the people from all over the world worship the power of Rome. They're in awe of the way that Rome can bounce back. And, and they're so resilient. And every, every death uh, comes roaring back with a resurrection. And those sequences we studied last week of death and resurrection for, for Rome. The power of the Roman sword is the envy of the world. The way that Rome can march in and make a public visible external display of force and get everybody to fall in line and get everybody to obey, that's super attractive. And apostate Israel has enshrined it. They've adored it. They lust after it. And they want power religion and not righteousness religion. Essentially, they have installed, they have enshrined Caesar in the temple. This theme of worship of power runs through the Bible, and it's really instructive, and it's really necessary for us to interpret the rest of Revelation 13. And it also is very helpful in our modern context um, here as well. So let's take aside just a few minutes and think about the worship of power as it plays out in Israel's history. In 1 Samuel, the people cry out for a king. They want a king. Why do they want a king? What kind of king do they want? They want a king like the kings of the nations who would go before them in battle and exercise power. Why do they need a king like this? Because they have rejected Yahweh as king. If you go back from 1 Samuel past Ruth into the book of Judges, in the time of Judges, that's what, that's what the book of Judges is all about. Yahweh is their king, and it's the job of the Levites to keep the kingship of Yahweh before the people. But in, in Revelation, I'm, I'm sorry, in Judges, all of the Levites are, uh, uh, they're, they're just bumbling. They, they really mess up. They sin, and they're, they're, not, they're not faithful. Um, and so they don't do a good job of keeping Yahweh's kingship before, before the people. Because God has manifested his, his kingship through his law, if they will live faithfully, they will have peace. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please Yahweh, even his enemies are at peace with him. So if you obey Yahweh, you've got peace. But what if, what if you don't want to obey God's law, but you still want to have peace? What do you need? Well, you've got to have power. 
You exchange righteousness religion, pleasing God, for power religion. You have to have a mighty king to protect you from the enemies that God sends you when you live lawlessly. Or, or so they presume. The king really is never going to protect them long term. It all falls apart. Do you ever wonder, though, why the most immoral, corrupt people are also the most authoritarian and power hungry? You would think if somebody wants to leave, uh, live a really licentious lifestyle, that they would just want everything to be, you know, just let it go. Just, just be free. Just do what you want to. The most, the most libertarian and, and free and liberal. Why are the most immoral, perverse people also the most authoritarian? Because we want to participate in adultery, fornication, perversion. We want the right to steal and defraud and kill children and enslave. But God keeps sending us enemies to punish us for this. So what do we need to do? Repent? Ha! No, we're not doing that. We need a strong king with a powerful army, which he's not afraid to use, to protect us from the enemies that God sends us when we disobey. We need protection so that we can live however we, can, we please. Power religion says we need a big authoritarian who isn't afraid to display military might who will keep us safe no matter how we live, and you better believe we'll live however we want to, and our government will protect us from all consequences of our wickedness. That's what we want. We want a government that's strong enough to protect us from the consequences of our sin. Righteousness religion says, well, if we make it our chief aim to please the Lord in all things, we'll have peace. Well, God gives Israel a king, and we get Saul, and then we get David, and then we get Solomon. And Solomon begins his reign with wisdom and righteousness. Solomon's name means peace, and his rule is marked by peace at the start. But about 20 years into his reign, even though he's got this great reputation, and Gentiles are learning wisdom from him, Solomon falls into sin and he becomes enamored with authoritarian power religion. He makes the people come work on public works projects one month out of the year in Jerusalem. That is a heavy form of taxation. That's one-twelfth of your energy. That's one-twelfth of your life to come and work uh, for the state instead of on your own property. What kind of disruption of your life would that be? I remember people later complained to his son Rehoboam and say, lift these heavy burdens that your, your father put on us. They were heavy. They were onerous burdens. Uh, so Solomon taxes the people and he has money flooding into his treasury. And so if we go back and read in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 about um, uh, Solomon's kingdom, the weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. Hang on to that number. Besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country, 666 talents of gold were flooding into Solomon's treasury every single year. And if a talent is 75 pounds, and a pound is 16 ounces, and an ounce of gold goes for about $1,800 today, uh, that's 1.4 billion, with a B, billion dollars flooding into Solomon's treasury every year. And them's 1,000 BC dollars. But I think a dollar went a lot further in 1,000 BC than it did today. But gold is not all that Solomon is amassing. 
If we go read a little bit further down to verse 26 of 1 Kings 10, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores which are in the lowland. He's amassing horsemen and chariots. He's got a large standing army. When you have all this gold, you need an army to protect it. For every ounce of gold, you need an ounce of lead to protect the gold. And so you have to, you have, to have this large army to, to guard your gold. But wait, there's more. He's not just collecting gold. He's not just collecting guns or an army. He's also collecting girls. In chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom Yahweh had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor are they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of his father David. Well, what's the problem with all of this? What's going on here? Why is this a big deal? Well, God's law specifically forbids the king of Israel from amassing gold, an army, horses, and wives. You cannot multiply wealth, weapons, or women. In Deuteronomy 17, this is what God's law says. The king shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For Yahweh has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. God says, my king shall not multiply wealth, weapons, and women, because that will turn his heart away. If he trusts in his own power and his own might and authority and his own arm to save him, then he will turn away from doing what pleases me. He will turn toward power away from righteousness. He'll think that he doesn't need my protection anymore. And by this turning away, Solomon splits the kingdom. Solomon's temple is going down in flames. And by the first century, Israel still has not learned this lesson. So we're reminded in Revelation of a number. We're reminded of a number that only comes up one other time in the scriptures. If we had a number 40, we could show a bunch of times where the number 40 came up. If we saw a number 7, we could look at a number of places. But there's only one other place in the Bible that the number 666 comes, and that's in 1 Kings chapter 10. The number of the beast is the amount of gold that floods into Solomon's treasury so that we put all this together and we remember in Revelation 13, verse 18, here is wisdom. Well, wisdom reminds you of Solomon right off the bat, doesn't it? Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to let you meditate on this for a week and conclude with this thought. We have this vision of an unholy alliance, this cooperation of Rome and Herod and apostate Israel, all orchestrated by the dragon, symbolized and sealed by this number that recalls Solomon's disobedience 
all of this aligned in opposition to King Jesus. And what's unveiled to us is at the core of the strange brotherhood, the strange, the strange bedfellows that come together here. At the core of this is the lust for power over a desire for righteousness. This alliance and the power it brings is more important for Israel than submitting to her king, Jesus. More important than following their Messiah. And what, what, what happens is it ultimately backfires and leads to their destruction. If they had followed Jesus, he would defend them against their enemies, but they don't, so he comes to them in destruction. Well, this comes as an encouragement and a warning to the first century audience for them to get through what is coming their way. And in order to have blessing in life and the pleasure of God on their lives, they have to reject all temptations toward this worldly religion of power. You must not pursue the gods of worldly reputation and respectability and worldly wisdom in a pagan culture. Do not worship the powerful and their power. Rather, identify with the lowly the people that Jesus identifies with, the outcast, the stranger, the meek, the widow, the orphan, the martyr, embrace the foolishness of the gospel. And that same temptation is with us today. The worship of worldly power is ultimately a desire for security apart from the safety that comes in covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness Allegiance to King Jesus is attended with safety and security. We are tempted, however, to believe that faithfulness bears no fruit, that there's no blessing or peace or safety in living a life that pleases the Lord in all things. We're tempted to believe that he's not actually a good shepherd. We're tempted to believe that he's not a reliable fortress. There has to be something more. There has to be something else, something like the power of the Roman army in its very visible authoritarian presence. The religion that worships power locates the promise of security in something other than the Lord Jesus. And just as Solomon's heart was pulled away, so we are pulled away from a steadfast trust in Christ toward the beastly false religion that inflates the promises and inflates the claims of false messiahs. Until we find out, we go all the way down the road, we find out they're empty, they're bankrupt, and they're impotent. But when you feel like you're always on the short end of the stick, when you always feel like you're on the bottom looking up, when you feel like the wicked and the, the evil are on top and you're on the bottom, it's tempting to want to act like they do. It's tempting to want to live like they do and think like they do just to get where they are. And then maybe when I get where they are, then I can be the boss and I can sort everything out. The problem is, is that you lose your integrity along the way. You lose everything. You have nothing to offer once you get there. This is why we must not envy the wicked. We must not imitate them or seek their approval. When we compromise, we wake up with all kinds of strange bedfellows. The only way to have a real society of peace and order is not through the way of strong-arm human authority, but through lives of self-sacrificial obedience to God. Esteem others more highly than yourself. Even God does this. He's the example. He's the most truly powerful of all and yet when you worship him as father, he says, thank you, but have you seen my son? I just, I'm really proud of my son. I want you to worship him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him 
And then you worship the Lord Jesus. And he says, truly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says to his apostles, but I can't stay with you. So I'm gonna send you my spirit. He will lead you into all truth. And then the spirit comes and directs all of our worship and all of our prayers back to the father and back to the son. This is the way of life. This is the way that God as, as, as triune creator of everything has, has demonstrated. This is the way, this is the way of life. This is the way we imitate as the way of peace and real security. Reject the worship of power reject the worship of everything that the beast stands for and embrace Christ and know peace. We'll pick up here next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and give you thanks for your word. And we ask you to cause us to meditate on these things and to impress them upon our hearts so that we might live lives that please you in every way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.